All right, all right, all right. Come on now. Don't be so kind. Don't be so nice to each other. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. My name is Glenn. I serve as one of the pastors here. Really glad you're here this morning. Uh, If you brought your Bible or a fake Bible on a device, go ahead and grab them. We're going to be in Genesis, the book of Genesis. We've been making our way as a church through this book. It's a sermon series. It's covering really our origins, the origin of all things. Genesis is an incredible book. Um, I tell you what, without Genesis, we are missing a lot. You've heard me say it before, but your New Testament and your Bible references, quotes the book of Genesis over 200 times. It's more than any other book. And without Genesis, we are missing so much. These are crucial words in this first book of your Bible. Um, What I want to do is I want to remind you of the structure of this book. Uh, Genesis is really divided, if you will, into two massive chunks. Um, One of them smaller, one of them a lot larger. Genesis 1 through 11, the first 11 chapters, are really about the beginning of the human race and kind of centers around four events. The creation of all things, the fall, the flood, which we're going to cover today, and then the dispersion of people and languages. Then Genesis 12 through 50, the rest of the book, covers really the beginning of the Hebrew race and God's dealings with four key people. And that's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Now, previously, what have we covered so far in the book of Genesis? Well, we've covered a lot. Uh, Coming to this morning, we have looked through the first four chapters, paramount themes in all of Christianity and everything that we believe and hold true. Um, God's power and his character on display in his making of all things, of men, of women, of marriage. We've seen the tactics of Satan, the way the evil one operates. We've seen the nature and power of sin. It's destructive abilities. We, even as recently as last week, talked about how what, what can happen in a person's life if sin goes unchecked. It's so dominant in our nature, it needs to be starved. It needs to be killed. And we celebrate that God in his son Jesus has given us the ability to do that and to walk in new life with his spirit. At every turn, here's what's happened so far. We've been exposed to really the darkness, the brutality, the reality of our nature apart from God. As human beings, um, things are not as good as we think they are. (laughs) And yet at the same time, you want to know what else has happened as we've preached through this book. We have grown in our love and our affection and our appreciation and our worship of God the Son. Jesus Christ, Son of God, Son of Man, our Savior, our Redeemer, our friend. At the very heart of our faith is the God-man himself who comes to bear our sin and to free us from its penalty and its power. You know, anytime we open the word as a church, that's the idea. It's to bring us to an increase of Jesus Christ among us and a decrease of ourselves. It's that he would get more glory and we would get less. And I pray this morning is no different as the word of God is preached here. City Light Bennington, may Jesus get his increase 
As we move along through this book, um, chapter 5 in Genesis, it gives us a genealogical record. So-and-so begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so, and this leads us to a very popular character in the Bible. Anyone heard of the guy named Noah? Show of hands. Show of hands. Uh, most of us in here have probably heard of Noah, a very popular character, especially in the books that you read to your kids at night with all the animals in, in the boat floating and the sun is shining. And um, I just want to forewarn you and, and help us to brace ourselves this morning. Um, First of all, we have our work cut out for us, okay? We've been taking Genesis. We did chapter 1, then chapter 2. Chapter 3 and 4 have been kind of divided down into some smaller portions. Um, pray for me. I'm covering 6, 7, 8, and 9 this morning in one sermon, okay? Buckle your seatbelt, y'all. In the story of Noah, uh, here's the thing. It is very familiar with us, but by way of introduction, I just want to give it some legitimacy. According to the Institute for Creation Research, more than 200 ancient cultures have documented a story about a flood like the one described in these chapters. 95% of those speak of a global flood. 88% speak of a favored family. 73% animals were saved. 70% a boat saved the family. 66% indicate the flood was due to the wickedness of man, and people were forewarned of the flood. And 57% indicate survivors landed on a mountain. Additionally, a lot of marine fossil evidence has been found at high elevation. Himalayans, the Alps, the Rockies, the Appalachians, the Andes. Um, Even fossils have been found on Mount Everest at 29,000 feet above sea level. Scripture tells us that the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat, which span modern-day Turkey and Armenia. The Armenian people call these mountains Nakhichevan, which means first landing or the place of descent. The ancient name was Nakswana, which means town of Noah. And Scripture tells us that only eight people were saved in the ark, and as fate would have it, the region around the, the mountains of Ararat is known as Terra Feminine, which translates region of the eight. Why am I telling you this? Church, this is no tall tale. This is a real story, and the catastrophic proportions of the chapters that we're about to explore together really happened. I've titled this morning's sermon quite simply, Wrath and Rescue. Wrath and rescue. And here's where we're going to go. I want to brace you. First off, we're going to see some things in Scripture today that may challenge or rock us a little bit when it comes to who God is. There may be some parts of God's character that you are introduced today to that you have to reckon with that maybe you haven't reckoned with before. And second, we're going to see a picture of Jesus that is perhaps bigger more profound, more beautiful than we could imagine. And my prayer is that it actually moves us into a changed life. You're going to see how. Pray with me before we dive into these verses. God, have your way among us. We pray today that you would do what it takes in us to accomplish your will through us. And God, we ask that every 
heart would be ready for tilled soil this morning. However comfortable we came in with life, God, however distraught, depressed, anxious we came in today, whatever our life and our perspective has brought to us this week, God, help us to stop, pause, and look heavenward. Oh God, would your word get in front of us this morning and disrupt us in good ways. We ask this in your name and for your glory, Jesus. Amen. Let's pick it up in Genesis chapter 6. I'm going to start in verse 1. Then the people began to multiply on the earth, and daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw the beautiful women and took any they wanted as their wives. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not put up with humans for such a long time, for they are only mortal flesh. In the future, their normal lifespan will be no more than 120 years. In those days, and for some time after, giant Nephilites, your translation may say Nephilim, lived on the earth. For whenever the sons of God had intercourse with women, they gave birth to children who became the heroes and famous warriors of ancient times. So that all makes sense, right? (laughs) We can move on. A few different theories about these first four really admittedly obscure verses in Genesis chapter 6. One is that these sons of God and these daughters of men were Cain's sons and Abel's daughters. There's a line of, of righteousness and a line of evil that's created after the murder of Cain and Abel. Uh, there's a, a seed of Eve and a seed of the evil one. And God does not desire that these lines would intermarry. He desires to keep them distinct and And separate, so of course this would be joining together what God wants to be separate. A second theory is that these sons of God were rulers of some kind of dynasty, some aristocracy, uh, some ruling class that just had dominance and, and power and used it in greedy, sinful ways. The third is that the sons of God are actually angels. They are heavenly hosts. Um, in the Hebrew, it's B'nai Elohim. And I just want you to know, church, elsewhere in Scripture, any other time that that is used in the Old Testament, it means angels. And if they are angels, which is my personal view in the consensus of most literature in the intertestamental period, which is between the composition of the Old Testament and the New Testament, um, here's, here's what you need to know. In verse 4, the Nephilites, the, or the Nephilim, It's translated fallen ones. So if these are angels that are coming in some kind of human form and intermarrying with human women, could it be that there's something happening in the rebellion of heaven, of which we've covered already, um, trying to thwart a pure line that would lead to Jesus? So take it or leave it, but here's the point. Whatever the conclusion, there's a picture of spiraling of sin that just keeps happening and getting worse and worse as it presses forward all the way from Eve's decision in the garden. These sons of God saw the women to be attractive and took as many as they wanted as their wives. Eve, in the garden, saw the forbidden fruit to be attractive, desirable. This is just another picture, church, of created beings wanting to throw off the boundaries of their creator 
because of evil within. Listen, there is no shortage in your Bible. There is no shortage in human history. There is no shortage in your life and my life of created beings, human men and women, wanting and desiring and being attracted to things that they do not need. This is our story. This is the self-destructive power of sin that is very real in our lives and in our world today. And if you get anything else from these obscure verses from the first four verses of chapter six of Genesis, I want you to get this. I want you to understand that we are self-destructive without God. That apart from God, separated from God, left to ourselves, we are self-destructive beings. This is weaved into the fabric of our nature. First John 2.16, it says, For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. I want something and I can't have it. I want something I don't need and I can't have it. I want it. That does not come from the Father, but from the world. And look, if you need to get a, a sense, more of a sense of how bad things were, God says in verse 3, my spirit can't put up with it. My spirit can't dwell with humans for a long time. In other words, man is so corrupt that my spirit can't persevere, can't merge together. This is so sad because where the spirit of God is absent, think about your life, chaos ensues. Where the spirit of God is not present, chaos happens and so it does. In Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 5, the Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth. And he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. This is elaborated down in verse 11. Now God saw that the earth had become corrupt and was filled with violence. God observed all this corruption in the world for everything on earth was corrupt. Corruption, 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 violence, perpetual, perversion, cyclical, over and over, so extensive, so intense. What does God say next? In verse six, the Lord was sorry he had ever made them and put them on the earth. It broke his heart. In verse seven, the Lord said, I will wipe this human race I have created from the face of the earth. Yes, and I will destroy every living thing, all the people, the large animals, the small animals that scurry along the ground, even the birds of the sky. I am so sorry I ever made them. In really bleak terms, author Victor Hamilton says that God's decision is to destroy what is self-destroyed or self-destroying already. It's like he's stopping something before it gets way worse. It's almost a merciful wrath. And this is our first biblical look into God's heart. We see something of his personality. And where I want to press in here, church, is um, the New Testament reveals God to us as spirit. God the Spirit, one of three persons who make up our triune God. And we learn that we can grieve the Spirit. We can resist the Spirit. We can quench the Spirit. 
can we please stop understanding God as an object, an idea, a religion, a morality? Can we please begin to regard him as a person? He is a being. And Yahweh is like a friend to us, pleading with us to do the right thing, love the right things, flee from evil. And it's as if we are just isolating ourselves from that friend, pushing that friend away, cutting off communication, even insulting that friend, saying, I know better than you do. This is our God. I want you to think about your life week to week right now. I guarantee you, you're going to be able to resonate with this. How many times in a given week, or even a day at that, do you have thoughts that go through your mind of, I should do that. I should call them. I should stop and pray for them. I wish I did that more. And how often do you think that's your own voice that's speaking, church? What if the source of that voice over and over and over again every day of our lives is not us, but it's Almighty God? What if the source of those promptings, those leadings is not us, but it's the one who made us, who desires better for us. It's the one who has a greater vision for our life. What if it's him? I'm here to tell you today it is. And my prayer is that we would be actually, not just on a mission statement, on a website, we would be a spirit-led church. That we would be marked by obedience to a voice that leads us that's not ours. A voice that's a lot more wise. A voice that's a lot more loving. A voice that's a lot more sacrificial than our own. A voice that has been gifted to us that we used to be separated from. But because Jesus has come, we become familiar to that voice. You know this waiting room ministry that you've heard promoted in our church before? On Saturday mornings. There was one yesterday. I got a call from your pastor, Roy. And he called me and he said, he was just overflowing. He said, you would not believe the kinds of things that are happening on Saturday mornings in the waiting room. What's happening? People are simply becoming more and more familiar with the voice of God in their life. People are becoming more familiar and sensitive to the shepherd's voice. People are becoming more obedient to his voice. Can you imagine our community? Forgive me if I'm just going here. Imagine our community, our neighborhoods, our families. If we just heard God's voice clearly, so familiar with it, and then walked in step with him. It's amazing right here that that's what God desires and no one on earth is listening to him. God, would you please make us a spirit-led church that is in tune with your voice. A character enters now that we're very familiar with. His name's Noah. I want you to pick it up with me in verse 8. But Noah found favor with the Lord. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, the only blameless person living on earth at the time. And he walked in close fellowship with God. The language here would just tell us that Noah's a good man in comparison to the people of his time. In Noah, you're going to find more character and integrity, a stronger moral compass, but more than anything, the book of Hebrews tells us that Noah is a man of faith. He's in the, the, the hall of faith, the hall of fame of faith in the book of Hebrews. He's a man of faith and trust in tune with God's voice. In the apostle Peter's second epistle, 
He looks back to Noah and calls him a preacher of righteousness. And I just want you to know, none of this makes Noah sinless. But he is chosen by God for a task. It's to Noah that God reveals his intention down in verse 17. Look, I am about to cover the earth with a flood that will destroy every living thing that breathes. Everything on earth will die, but I will confirm my covenant with you. So enter the boat, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring a pair of every kind of animal, a male and a female, into the boat with you to keep them alive during the flood. Pairs of every kind of bird and every kind of animal and every kind of small animal that scurries along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. And be sure to take on board enough food for you and your family and for all the animals. And listen, much of the details of Genesis chapter 6 and Genesis chapter 7, all of the instructions that God gives on how to make the boat and all of its measurements, it's summed up, all of it, I think, in one verse. It's at the end of chapter 6, verse 22. Noah did everything exactly as God had commanded him. It's amazing how much is left out of this account. I just, just think about this. How did Noah feel during all of this? How did he gather all of the resources necessary? Was he alone? Did he have other people do it with him? Did he say anything? Did he complain about anything? Did he get tired? Did he want to give up? From these chapters of Genesis, we glean something, church, and it's this. The best kind of obedience to God is the kind that you do. Like, God, I'm a vessel. You said it. Make me your servant. God, I'm your vessel. Make me for honorable use, Lord. Give me my marching orders, God. And even in small ways, I want to be obedient day to day. I want to give you permission to upset my life. Church, I want you to know God desires obedience. He desires it. It pleases him. It's a sweet aroma to him. Now, many of us, if we take account of our lives thus far and how long maybe we've been associated or what's a better word, exposed to Christian teaching, think of how many podcasts we've listened to, how many sermons we've streamed, how many times we've sit on a Sunday morning gathering, how many times you've heard me talk at you, how many times you have sang the songs and You've, you've been in the Bible study, in the city group, in the huddle, and you've studied and you've studied and you've studied. And I've said this before to our church, but I want to reiterate it. Sometimes the danger is that we can be educated beyond our obedience. This is a common plague, in my humble opinion, of the American church. We are educated and we want more and we want to consume and our church wants to become a cul-de-sac of consumerism where we come in and we get our religious goods and services. God gives us his word, reveals himself, the person and work of Jesus and his calling on our life so that we might live it, so that we might be doers of the word, not merely hearers so deceiving ourselves. There is no more. I just want you to hear me, church. Hear me. There is no more that God needs to give us for all of life and godliness. There's no more left for heaven to give. Jesus has come. He's paid the penalty for our sin. He's freed us from it to walk in freedom and new life. 
He's put the course of the story he's writing in our world right in front of us. He's invited us into this mission. He's told us, preach the gospel. He's told us, as you're being taught, teach to others. He's told us, forgive, love, serve, consider others' needs more significant than your own. The list goes on and on. There are 52 one another verses in the New Testament. He's called us to care for the widow, for the poor, for the orphan. What's our role? Humble, joyful obedience. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Here's the thing. I am so encouraged as one of your pastors to be a part of a church where I know a lot of people in this congregation whose life is marked by so many things, but the biggest thing is just simple obedience. Do you know how much it spurs on other people's faith when you're just around somebody who is spontaneously obedient to God? They just say yes to the Lord. They don't overthink it. They don't overanalyze it. They don't get out all of their pre-conceived you know, list of all the things that would keep them from being obedient. I'm busy. Like, that's the biggest one, right? I'm just really busy. I got other priorities. I got... They're just obedient. Could it be that we could be a church with more and more, more and more folks who are just obedient to God? People who are not normal. People who are distinct and, and just smell different than the world. You've been around those folks. You know how encouraging it can be. You've been that person that's exercised obedience even in a small way and seen how it has spurred on someone else's faith. God desires to use you in that way, Christian. Say yes to him. Start today. Bite-sized. Say yes to him. Send that text. Start that conversation. Invite those people to dinner. Serve in that way that's out of your normal routine. Faith is a verb. And I just want to ask us, church, this is for me too, how is faith being exercised as a verb in our lives right now? Ooh, Noah. Woo. <laughs> Chapter 7, I want to read what then happens, starting in verse 11. When Noah was 600 years old, on the 17th day of the second month, all the underground waters erupted from the earth, and the rain fell in mighty torrents from the sky. The rain continued to fall for 40 days and 40 nights. Now listen, this is going to get exceedingly heavy. And I know that we all love the story we tell our kids, but can we just let God say to us what his word says, church? Look at the tragic, horrific, devastating outcome of human beings' rebellion idolatry, sin. Church, behold God's wrath. In verse 21, all the living things on earth died. Birds, domestic animals, wild animals, small animals that scurry along the ground, and all the people Everything that breathed and lived on dry land died. God wiped out every living thing on the earth, people, livestock, small animals, and the birds of the sky. 
all were destroyed. The only people who survived were Noah and those with him in the boat. One of the questions I want us to ask this morning is how does Jesus reference this story? When he enters the scene in the New Testament, how does God the Son reference this story? I want to show you. In Matthew chapter 24, 36 to 39, Jesus says, however, no one knows the day or hour when these things will happen. Not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself. Only the Father knows. When the Son of Man returns, here it is, it will be like it was in Noah's day. In those days before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets, parties, weddings, right up to the time Noah entered his boat. People didn't realize what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them away. That is the way it will be when the Son of Man comes. I want to tell you something that is maybe perhaps not popular in pulpits today. But it is true. I want to ask you, do you know that Jesus Christ is coming again? And I want to tell you, church, judgment is coming. Please see that. Judgment of all people is coming. Everything comes from God and everything will return to God. In Revelation, we get a picture briefly of what this can look like in chapter 20. I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it. The earth and sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne. And the books were opened, including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up its dead, and death and the grave gave up their dead, and all were judged according to their deeds. Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This lake of fire is the second death, and anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Hell is real. The second coming of Jesus Christ will be the most glorious, exciting, joy-filled, euphoric experience for people who know and trust him and the most horrific, unexpected surprise for people who do not. This is our future. And I just want you to know, God does what he says he'll do. He never takes back a promise. If he says he'll do it, that's the truth. And I, I want to ask, church, does this burden us? Does it burden you, Christian? Does it burden you for your neighbors? Does it burden you for the person that perhaps, by God's grace, you brought with you this morning to be with us? Does it burden you for your coworkers? 
There are a million things that we could put up on a whiteboard to say all the reasons why we are not sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with people. Trash the list. By God's grace, would we be eager to share our faith? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And can I tell you about that good news? Can I tell you what you, Christian, have the pleasure, the privilege, the joy of sharing with other people? Can I please plead with you that it really is good news? It's not just news. It's really good, great, greatest news ever kind of news. I want to share with you what we have the chance to appeal to our neighbors with. And I want to use the story here to illustrate it. Do you know how long Noah and his family were in that boat? You know how long they were sealed inside? God shut the door. A year at least. A calendar year. They're inside that boat. And let me tell you some things about this story, church. (laughs) Noah wasn't known or recorded to be any kind of navigator. There was no recording of him like messing with the gadgets and the apparatus and grabbing his sons and, and, you know, getting buckets of water and throwing them out of the boat. There's no sense of him trying to figure out how to get from point A to point B. There's no rudder recorded. The storm outside is savage and the boat safely floats. Nothing is mentioned inside the ark throughout the entire duration of the flood All of the activity is outside the ark. God's instructions are, get inside. I'm sealing the door shut. And if Noah and his family will emerge from this alive, it will be because of mercy. (laughs) And look back at Genesis chapter 6 in verse 14. God says, build a large boat from cypress wood and waterproof it with tar inside and out. This is amazing. Tar was a substance that was oil-based and it was prevalent in the Middle East. The Hebrew word for tar in that verse is kafar. And literally every other time, 70 times in the Old Testament, that word is used. It means to make atonement. You think God might be trying to teach us something here, City Light? Church, the ark is a picture of Jesus. It's a picture of Jesus. It's a picture of our saving vessel. It's a picture of what we look to today that has come down from heaven to rescue us from Satan, sin, and death. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes, they speak, he's talking about a church, how you are looking forward to the coming of God's Son from heaven, Jesus, whom God raised from the dead. He is the one who has rescued us from the terrors of the coming judgment. In Hebrews chapter 9, the author says, just as each person is destined to die once, and after that comes judgment, so also Christ was offered once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. He will come again, not to deal with our sins, but to bring salvation to all who are eagerly awaiting for him. Isaiah 55, here's a plea, a prophetic plea. Seek the Lord while you can find him. Call on him while he is near.
In John 14, 6, Jesus told them, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Christians, I don't know if you have, but I have. I've seen the data out there. I've seen the polls. I've seen the surveys. I've seen the state of theology in our world right now amongst self-proclaimed Christians. 43% of whom, as of 2022, say that God honors every form of worship out there. That Jesus is one of many ways to come to heaven, to be forgiven. I know the movements out there, and if you don't, that are progressive, that push in our culture to say that the gospel is so much more than Jesus being the lamb who was slain to atone for our sin. Can I just tell you, maybe it does mean a lot more. It doesn't mean less than that. We need a righteousness from heaven that cannot be found in and of ourselves. We need someone to come and live as a substitute in our place, the life that we cannot live. We need somebody who can take on all of our sin and become that curse and exchange with us his righteousness. We need someone to be treated as a sinner so that we can be treated as holy. Praise Jesus. Praise Jesus. May we be a Jesus-centered church. May Jesus receive all the worship that he's due among us. We always say at the end of every gathering, may the lamb receive his reward for his suffering. May it be in our church. A question that I have that is in closing this morning is are we in or are we out? Are we in God's presence or are we out of God's presence? Are we in the proverbial ark or out of it? Are we in Christ or not? Are we in the spirit or in the flesh? You know, as I was thinking about this, um, I was really burdened, church, to bring kind of a, a sense of clarity and assurance to us. Some of you may be sitting here hearing me talk about all of this and um, perhaps, maybe not all of you, but perhaps some of you, it's, it instills some kind of, of, of fear. Will I be counted among the righteous? Will I be counted among the saints when Jesus comes again? Here's what God says. God says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Amen. Here's what the word of God says. The word of God says that to all who receive him, to all who believe in his name, they are given the right to become children of God. Here's what the word of God says. It says anyone who claims to have no sin, the truth is not in him. The word of God tells us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
What's that classic verse that everybody, even non-Christians, know? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son that whoever believes has faith in, trusts in, depends on, knows, loves him, will not perish, but have everlasting life. Rejoice in your salvation today, Christian. And if you're not, if you would say, I've not asked God to forgive my sin, I've not repented and turned from my sin, I've not bowed my knee to Jesus and seen him and worshiped him as Lord, let today be the day of salvation. See, God's heart is so loving and so generous that even when the floodwaters recede, okay, we're going to continue, even when the floodwaters recede, even when the ground dries up, the boat has come and it's landed, even when man's sin has not gone anywhere, even when blameless Noah cultivates a vineyard and gets drunk on wine and naked and then goes into a tent, even when Noah's son Ham does something sexually immoral to his father in the succeeding verses. Even when God has knowledge of these things, he isn't surprised by them. And in the midst of the story, he still blesses. Even when God is familiar with our sin, church, he gives grace. God knows. God knows your heart. God knows our life. He knows our thoughts. He knows our inner being. Nothing can be hidden from him. And look at Genesis chapter 8, beginning in verse 20. Then Noah built an altar. This is right after they land. And there he sacrificed as burnt offerings the animals and birds that had been approved for that purpose. And the Lord was pleased with the aroma of the sacrifice and said to himself, listen to these words, I will never again curse the ground because of the human race, even though everything they think or imagine is bent toward evil from childhood. And out of the abundance of his love and faithfulness, he still makes promises. Look at chapter 9, starting in verse 12. God said, I am giving you a sign of my covenant with you and with all living creatures for all generations to come. I have placed my rainbow in the clouds. It is the sign of my covenant with you and with all the earth. When I send clouds over the earth, the rainbow will appear in the clouds and I will remember my covenant with you and with all living creatures. Never again will the floodwaters destroy all life. When I see it in the clouds, I will remember the eternal covenant between God and every living thing on earth. Then God said to Noah, yes, this rainbow is the sign of the covenant I am confirming with all the creatures on earth. This is the first of many major covenants. This is the Noahic covenant. This is a promise that God makes that is not dependent or upheld by man's participation. Who is like our God? who loves and is committed to us even when we're not committed to him like our God. Praise Jesus. The Hebrew language uses cassette for bow or rainbow and it's a common image in the ancient Near East of a deity with power who reigns on his enemies with a bow. His prowess is seen through the bow and the arrow. How does God wield that kind of power, church? He lays the bow down. The bow ceases to function as a symbol of combat, and it is now a symbol of peace. And the greater, truer bow is the cross. It's something that is used as a symbol of crucifixion and torture, but what it purchases for us is peace with God. 
It's a symbol of peace between God and man. It foreshadows that while we are still sinners, Christ lays down his life for us. May it move us to worship Jesus. In conclusion, um, in Genesis chapter 8 and 9, we see that seasons and climate and topography are introduced to the world. Funny enough, we see that animals and, and fish and birds, they now fear and revere man, and there is power that God gives us over them. The meat eaters in the room are thinking, hallelujah, thank you, Lord. Gives them to us for food. And, and finally, um, I want you to know, church, the image of God in men and women is not ruined at all by the flood. After the flood, God actually institutes the first sense of government where humans are to commend righteousness amongst one another and condemn that which is wrong and evil. Um, Next week, we're gonna move forward in the story of the Tower of Babel, but here is my ask in closing is this, and I'm gonna pray. How right now in our lives are we living business as usual. Right now, how are we just going day to day to day when God's vision for our life is so much more? How right now are we preparing for the second coming of Jesus? Would that not be a burden for us? Would that lift our burden? Would that increase our excitement and our own vision for our life? And would God make us a church that's burdened that people would come to know Jesus. Outside of these walls would we live as missionaries because Jesus is coming again. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for your love and your grace. Thank you for preserving the story of Noah for us so that we might see your character in ways that maybe we've not reckoned with before. And God, we are asking that through this story we see more than anything else the love the grace, the goodness, the faithfulness of your character toward us in Christ. Jesus, we love you because you first loved us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.